Hi, and welcome to Unhinged History, the podcast where Angie and Teresa team up and tell you the stories about history that we've been compulsively learning about, and we're about to info dump on you. So brace yourselves, get a spill chart or a spill sheet. Or a garbage bag. Yeah, or, you know, one of those really big lobster bibs that you get when you go to the classy restaurants and you're dressed up and then they put this plastic tarp over the front of you because nothing says romantic. (laughs) Do not ask her to marry you dressed like that. Or do. I mean, do. I mean, hey. Send us a picture. Honestly, we're here for it. If you go to Joe's Crab Shack and they write the, the, the saucy messages on the front of it, too, I mean, that's even better. I love Joe's Crab Shack. I was so, so sad when we lost our Crab Shack to the pandemic. Oh, I am so sorry about that. I mean, that was really how we celebrated everything. Well, as it should be. I mean, <laughs> bucket of crab. They Tiny have the, bib. the those those drinks you can get where they drop the grenadine in and they yell, shark attack, we we may or may not have an untold number of sharks that in child's play chest because of our propensity to get hammered and give her toys at the table. <laughs> I never mind. I mean, we didn't we didn't exactly get hammered. I shouldn't say it like that, but I mean, well, you know, when you said it like that, my first thought was a hammerhead shark. I mean, they did have some of those. See? Yeah, yeah I mean, we were really trying to help her catch them all. That that's that was our. It's like her her Pokemon quest. Yeah, I mean, it was rather embarrassing one day when you know she's playing in her room and she's got this pile of sharks, and mother in law says, "Where did all those come from?" Um, you know the drinks that you get at Joe's Crab Shack, the alcoholic <laughs> ones. We we get when we bring her, we we get those just so she can have the sharks to play with. And seeing them all together makes us look really bad. It's like collecting beer cans for the child to stack. Um, okay. When my mom visited for the first time in like, I don't know, probably a decade, she was looking at my kitchen and at the time I had like this massive shelf that lined the roof. Yeah. And it was it lined the roof? Like the it not the roof, like this, like it was it went parallel with the ceiling. Okay. I was about so to like, say, your your kitchen suddenly became just outdoor. No, sorry. Parallel with the ceiling. And it had like 10 different whiskey bottles on it. Maybe. Um, and one vodka bottle that was the White Walker Game of Thrones. Okay. Bottle, which, by the way, I didn't drink any of. My friend did and gave me the bottle. <laughs> Empty? Um, another one was the Kraken rum, which I hated the rum. I took literally a shot of the rum and then poured the rest down the sink. I just wanted the bottle. Okay, whatever. So kept all the bottles for the longest time because I thought they were awesome. And my, my mom comes in and she's like, honey, do we need to have a talk? We've been drinking a lot. Only if these were from the month. Right. Ian is standing behind her, like, beat red and, like, suffocating. He's laughing so hard. And she's like, why is he laughing, honey? And I'm like, 
I don't know how to tell you this. And he goes, Patty, it's taken her 10 years to get that many of those bottles. I don't think she has a drinking problem. <laughs> um, and to boot, she didn't drink most of them. And the other half that maybe she's the one that she bought, um, she cooks her meat in whiskey. I, I marinate tri-tip in whiskey. Mm. And so like 95% of those <laughs> came Mom, from she's- cooking. She's too busy giving the whiskey to the children. She's not drinking all of it. Which was exactly where I went because when (laughs) Ethan was teething one night, she called and she was like, wow, he sounds really miserable. And I'm like, yeah, he's super miserable. Thinking about rubbing some rum all over his gums. Totally being sarcastic. I was absolutely not going to be doing this. But because it was my mom, like not going to miss this opportunity. (laughs) Okay. So similar vein. It was kiddo's first Christmas. We took her down to um, Mike's parents. We're hanging out, right? And Mike's sister and her husband came down and like, we're all talking and kiddo's six weeks old, right? And so she, my my sister-in-law is making this comment about how her mom used to rub whiskey on her gums when she was teething. Yeah. And her mom was like, I, I absolutely did not. There is no, that didn't, what? I'm sorry. Your source. <laughs> and she goes, yeah, mom, you, d- you did this. And I was just like, okay, first off, unless she was three, how would she know? Like how? And Unless you told her, how would she know? Right. I mean, you know, she's <laughs> if she's not old enough to remember, an infant's teething, teething children usually are too young. And she was adamant. And my mother-in-law was mortified. And my husband and I are just sitting there with popcorn, like, go on. (laughs) Oh, do go on. (laughs) Fascinating. And then what happened? So that's how they react. Mm -hmm. And like, I do remember. Yeah. And then (laughs) sister-in-law's like, well, yeah, you see that picture of me in the hall where I'm, you know, a year and a half and I have my hand on the stump. I had to have that stump in the photo because I was too fat to stand on my own. And we were like, really? You know, eating that popcorn. You were not too fat. That stump was there just because it was a prop. <laughs> so this episode is going to come out right before April Fool's Day. Like when I look at the calendar and get this whole thing going. And I know you had told me that you had a delightful April Fool's Day story that you were holding on to. And that. Yes, this story has been sitting in my back pocket done for six weeks. <laughs> I've got to know. I have I absolutely know. got to know. Okay. So let me ask you a question. <clears throat> do you want to hear the players, the cast of characters that are involved first? Or do you just want me to go right into it? I mean, I would say start with the sources. And then however you feel the story's best told. I feel like there's no way to tell it without just hitting it right in the face. <laughs> All right. Um, I scroll down to my sources. I have a lot of sources. Um, two of my sources. Okay, so this is <clears throat> this is one of the reasons why I love this story so much. Two of my sources are YouTube videos. One of them, published by the BBC, which is the actual um, moment in history. Like the BBC publishes all of their like little shorts. Yeah, on YouTube. So it is super fun. You can actually go back and watch the whole incident as it happened. 
1957. <laughs> um, com, the inflation tool, as we love to know how much yeah. money is. A-R-S-T Technica.com BBC uh, Wikipedia because I had a question that only Wikipedia could answer and History.com are my sources. All right. Okay. I want to tell you the story about the great spaghetti tree hoax of 1957. (laughs) Okay, every like Every the great blank of year mm-hmm. is always a word salad. Okay, so when I when I say the great spaghetti tree hoax of 1957, does it make you believe that it happens yearly? Because <laughs> I feel like when you say it like that, it happens more than once. <laughs> no, I mean I get it. I I get it. Like the pig war of 1838. That's the true. Sanford, the Great Fire of you, like the beer flood of eighteen four, like though, like that's what I hear. I hear big crazy incident that happened. Like well, back in my time during the Great Molasses Flood of, you know, like <laughs> that's true. That's true. <laughs> okay, I'll let you win that one. Um, but it makes me laugh so hard that that's what it was called. And I knew as soon as I saw that, I was like, mm, this is a story I need to tell yesterday because this is absolute gold so now i'm going to tell you who's involved because without telling you who's involved like i just have to explain this individual richard dimbley he was the bbc's first war correspondent and he, (laughs) he quote was a revered and trusted public figure sort of the Richard Attenborough of the 1950s, with enough gravitas to float an aircraft carrier. I want somebody to say that about me. Well, I want to earn the ability for someone to say that about me. Right? Um, So that that statement comes from Panama's producer, David Wheeler. And they believe that the reason this played out so well and worked so good is that Richard Dimbley was this gentleman who never, like, he just, straight to the facts, ma'am, like, he gave you the news and never gave anybody a reason to think otherwise. The the Walter Cronkite of their time. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. So, um, Michael Peacock was the editor of the show Panama and the man who approved the ideas now, hold on real quick. I feel like we've used the word Panama twice in relation gonna, to a show. Like, I would know what it is. Excuse but... me, not Panama. Panorama. I said the wrong word. Okay, because I was like... Explain Panorama. Just the country second. had its own series on the BBC? No. Um, okay, I'll just tell you what it is. So, Panorama is a current affairs program. Um, IMBD has this to say. They're a current affairs program featuring interviews and investigative reports on all aspects of British life. Um, the BBC says it's an investigative documentary series revealing the truth about the stories that mattered. It first aired in 1953 and is considered one of the longest running television news magazine programs. Television news mag that had to be a bizarre genre. Um, I I read a little bit because I was like, what is that? Um, Googled it. It's 
I don't know much beyond this, but it was like a format of telling the like the weekly news that came out of Germany that was like the way I understand it and I could be super wrong but this is the way I understood it was that it had the same idea as looking through a magazine or looking through a newspaper but it was visually on your tv or auditorily over your radio okay but like that same kind of flow is my understanding so they they aired weekly and they still air weekly they started in 1953 and then panorama has been going there was still shorts yeah still okay um so the so michael peacock is the editor of the show and i really hope i don't pronounce this guy's name wrong i'm trying to you, try really hard i mean so far we've already per- mispronounced panorama as panama. panama panama hey you know what it's really in the morning i was thinking about panama <laughs> <laughs> i mean so carry on because it can't charles get worse. Oh, it could. Charles de Jaeger is a native of Austria, and he is the cameraman from whence the idea came. There is also involved a local handful of Swiss ladies that um, need to be wearing traditional, the twist traditional costume of the of the Swiss people at the time. Okay. So. Here's like in 57 they had traditional garb or is this like, just yeah what you would expect of traditional garb like the okay. like i don't want to say lederhosen but you know the cute little poofy sleeve yeah, I'm, I'm i'm picking it up yeah i but... can send you pictures there are pictures that's that's what i'm here for <laughs> okay so specifically in the 1950s pasta and 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 more specifically, spaghetti was not well known in the UK. Most under- people's understanding of it from the time was that it came from a tin can with some type of tomato sauce. I'm getting real pre spaghettio vibes here. Yeah, I you know I mean I automatically just retranslated the straight noodles to the the little it's pasta so did, donuts. So did I. <laughs> um. So Charles is talking with michael charles the cameraman is talking with michael the producer and he's like "Mm, you know these people and he's they're just having a go of like funny things that they've heard just kind of shooting shooting the shooting the shooting the shit if you will uh shop talk uh standing around the coffee pot type conversation okay he says this i had a teacher in school that used to say Boys, you're so stupid, you'd believe me if I told you that spaghetti grows on trees. And then, ding, it hits him. He's going to be in Switzerland just before April Fool's Day. So he looks at Michael, the producer, the editor, and says, Hey, can I, can I put together a little segment and we can, we can put it out? it out to the people of the uk because i think it would just be absolutely gold it's gonna be a great gag and i'm already working on an assignment in switzerland come on man can we please do it and michael's like right then good luck chum it's what i'm imagining he would say right and he gives him a hundred pounds to make this happen which is roughly today twenty eight hundred dollars and then he just walks away he refuses okay first off Bruh got bankrolled twenty eight hundred dollars for a prank. Yes, he did. Um, that 
didn't go above Michael. So Michael didn't tell any of the higher ups at the BBC or in the panorama community because he did not want Charles's plan to get the kibosh. This could end in tears. Absolutely, it could, but it doesn't. <laughs> oh, ooh, okay. I mean, you shouldn't have maybe blown it because I was getting ready for the please step into HR's office. I will like that that could have happened, but none of my sources say that's what happened. Um, I think in this particular instance, the British had a real good sense of humor about the whole thing, especially the people at the BBC that had to answer the phones later. <laughs> so... Charles gets his 100 pounds from Michael, says he's, he's on his way to Switzerland. Michael just pretends like this conversation never happens. And he arranges that I am going to butcher this. He arranges this. Um, I'm not going to call it an interview. He arranges this a video shoot to take place at a hotel in Calistoni near Lake Laguno. And he feels. <laughs> It's so good. He shows a broadcast of a group of people harvesting spaghetti from the trees in Switzerland. De Jager buys 20 pounds of uncooked homemade spaghetti and he hangs the branches, he hangs the strands from the branches of the laurel trees around the lake to make it look like they were spaghetti trees. But, like, how? Because spaghetti. I'm like, glad you asked. So, incidentally, the cooked spaghetti just slips off the branches. Yeah. So, they have to keep the uncooked fresh spaghetti between damp cloths, between shoots, so that it doesn't dry out. Like, it needs to have a little bit of moisture, but he also needs it to be completely uniform. He hires local women to dress in the local costume excuse me, in the Swiss national costume, and he pretends to harvest the spaghetti. They fill wicker baskets and then place the strands out in the sun to dry. Okay. Quote, dry. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. I The way you just said Swiss, Swiss national costume, I'm imagining that at the age of 18, every national is issued a uniform <laughs> that hangs in their closet. You know, I'm maybe. It's like, well, you are now an adult. This is your coming of age. Here is your yeah. right to vote. Uh, here is. <laughs> and you must wear this while you do so. <laughs> yeah. You know, yeah. and the, the national uniform. Yeah. Yeah. So they're wearing the, the national uniform. Um, <laughs> they they delicately pick the harvest from the branches of the laurel tree and they lay them in the wicker basket and then they go lay them out to dry. At the end of the shoot, all the actors are rewarded with a great spaghetti feast, which is also part of the final segment. <laughs> then they get Mr. Dimbley involved and, quote, in a perfect deadpan, Dimbley noted that the spaghetti harvest in Switzerland would be particularly bountiful that year thanks to the almost complete eradication of the spaghetti tree's main predator, the spaghetti weevil. Oh, was it the Italians? Like, did they neglect the fact that this isn't even like a, a Swiss dish? <laughs> it just gets, it, that was my first thought was like, this isn't, even, this isn't, oh, you know, whatever, do your thing. <laughs> I mean, although now I kind of want an additional segment run by Monty Python of them attempting to eradicate. The spaghetti weevil or which, the Italians, <laughs> whatever. 
I could just, I just imagine something completely silly. Uh, I, yes, I feel like Charles the Jagger really had Monty Python in mind when he created this skit. Like, I didn't get to interview him, but I feel like with a sense of humor like this, there had to be some Monty Python in there somewhere, or maybe some Mel Brooks involved. Well, I mean, yeah, because I mean, this did predate both Monty Python and Mel Brooks, right? I mean, because 57. So, like, what, they started in the 60s with Monty Python? That's, I mean, what it seems like. What if, what if the Pythons were influenced by this news broadcast? I'm going to do all that now. What if they were like, you know what, I got an idea. What if we do an entire, I don't know, series on just stuff like this? Because it'd be perfection and the people will love it. And And now for something different. Yes, something completely different. (laughs) So um, allthat'sinteresting.com says this. Sir Ian Jacob, the general director of the BBC at the time, one of the most senior executives, was fooled into believing it even for just a moment. Jacob reportedly had to research spaghetti in three separate books to confirm that the segment was pulling his leg. <laughs> <laughs> this book must be wrong. I must grab a second book. Yes. Uh, my other source says something similar, but I wanted to share it as well. The BBC's own director general, Sir Ian Jacob, was taken in, at least at first. He and his wife tried to look up Tried to look it up in the Encyclopedia Britannica, only to discover that the encyclopedia at the time didn't even mention spaghetti. <laughs> the spaghetti harvest was a splendid idea, beautifully shot and organized, he later wrote to DeJager. The item has caused a great deal of delight in one way or the other. So after this aired, because Richard Dimbley was so Walter Conkrite of, Conkrite of his time, um... There was an immediate call, like flood of calls from viewers. Some caught on to the joke, but according to the BBC's Leonard Malal, mainly the calls were requests for the BBC to settle family arguments. The husband knew it must be true that spaghetti grows on a, on a bush because Richard Dimbley said so, and the wife knew it must be made with flour and water, but neither could convince the other. Okay, I like that because you know the wife's like in the kitchen. Like, look, I just look, I made this. I made this. The, what do you call this? It's not spaghetti because it doesn't grow on a tree. I'm I'm gonna kill you. That's exactly literally. I was like, I can hundred percent see how this is going. <laughs> so a few wanted to know where they could get their own spaghetti trees, and BBC operators were instructed to respond with. Place a sprig of spaghetti in a tin of tomato sauce and hope for the best. It's just rotting. Everything is rotting. <laughs> well, you, you just didn't, did you make it from scratch or did you, did you use the, see, that's the problem. We just can't import the good stuff. So you have to make your own tomato sauce, just like someone's Nona used to do it. Because exactly. again, we're back at the Italians. Right. And I, I wanted, when I was, when I was reading this, when I was looking for sources on this, because it is a short story, but I kind of wanted to know more information. Nowhere in any of my articles, nowhere in anything that I saw, did it mention that the UK was like, that the citizens of the UK were like, but wait, that's an Italian dish. I assume that they just assumed 
that Switzerland is so close to Italy that 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 made sense. Like, oh yeah, that's where the that's where the the stuff grows, and then they import it to Italy, and Italy makes this dish. Italy has its own trees, but he was there at the time of the harvest, and they look their tomato sauce has grapes in it. It's kind of weird, but it's just what they do. It's fine, pretty much. But also, I thought it was really fascinating that pasta specifically spaghetti was not well known in 1957 in the uk but i guess that makes sense (laughs) but at the same time to me to fool an entire country of people into thinking like just for funsies that that actually is how you do it and people argued about it at the dinner table for weeks following because richard dimley said so (laughs) makes me laugh so hard and he himself thought it was like just the funnest like oh i am absolutely i am here for this you can use my voice for whatever you want so he goes into recording and it is absolutely it's like three minutes of the funniest footage and him his voice over is so professional and so like you want to believe every word he says because obviously he's not lying to you (laughs) (laughs) and it just it made me laugh so hard like there was one article that talked about how that they did this as a way to to teach people that you can't believe everything you read or you see but i genuinely believe that it was just them having a go like let's just have fun well i'm glad that back in 57 they taught everyone the lesson not to read or believe everything they hear or read i'm so grateful that lesson was learned great job everyone look at where look how far we've come right i don't think that was at all on their mind in 1957 i think they were out to just have a good go and they did and it was a blast and you can go and watch the entire segment and it is so funny like the spaghetti weevil (laughs) it's just so silly i wish it was in color it's not in color it's in black and white but because i wanted it to be in color so we could see the national costume of the swiss but it's so charming and it made me laugh so hard and I have been dying to send you pictures and to send you the video of this since I learned about it but I haven't so say fini there you good. go the great spaghetti hoax of 1957 <laughs> good job of restraint there and uh give my regards to Ian for you being like no but look at this picture okay I don't care if you but <laughs> Teresa would love this picture so just act like her can you please just I'm just gonna send it to you and I need you to respond exactly like, she would okay thank you yeah, I need I need a laughy face. Thank you. No, I when I first sent it to him, he was like, "Oh my gosh." That was his response. I was like, "Oh." <laughs> <laughs> this we're never going to hear the end of this one. That's awesome. <laughs> Place a sprig of spaghetti in a tin of tomato sauce and hope for the best. Can you imagine making that like that's your phone call all day because every housewife in the country has called to say my husband is convinced that Mr. Dimbley is right. Can you imagine the marketing team that had to create the FAQ page and the script for the operators on what to say? (laughs) I think they loved it. I mean, okay, you could tell that that's exactly what I had to do yesterday, you know, when it was just like, (laughs) thankfully, it wasn't like come up with ways to take the piss, but it was just like, okay, here's what you, here's how, no, don't, don't, don't start with that. Don't start, (laughs) do not let those be the first (laughs) words out of your mouth. Start with something positive. End on a positive note. Hope for the best. Yes. And hope for the best. Like, 
I just want to I want to hear more firsthand accounts of the people that work there and had to deal with this. But from what from all accounts, even the director general, Sir Ian Jacob, was totally delighted by the whole thing. Like, well played, Charles. Well played. <laughs> I want to hear the chain smoking operator who's just like yes we got calls from 7 a.m to 7 p.m every night and folks wanting to prove their husbands wrong (laughs) tomato cans just flew off the shelves Mm -hmm. yeah i wonder i didn't i didn't see anything about that but i'm really curious now if it caused the sale of tomato sauce to rise in the uk we couldn't (laughs) import enough olives to feed the country it was it was bad Parmesan cheese just going bananas. Nobody could handle it anymore. <laughs> you made me clap out loud. <laughs> <laughs> Typically, claps are audible. <laughs> I love that your your the seven to seven chain smoking lady is clearly from somewhere in the eastern United <laughs> States and nowhere near Britain. I love it. She's an import. She moved there because her husband's in the army. <laughs> yeah, Thankfully, it. he'd done a tour in 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 Napoli, so he knew to, he knew the real thing. I knew better. So when you told me you were doing, and you know, a specific story for April Fool's Day, and you were so thrilled on this, I went into a tailspin because I have a list of stories. I'm like, I'm going to do one of my list, and none of them seem to fit. And then I started this deep, dark rabbit hole on like looking up good pranks and like historical pranks and things like that. Mm -hmm. And I found an entire thing that was so brand new to me that I had never heard even a hint about. Really? So I'm going to tell you the story of Count Robert or Count, Count Robert, Count Robert's Erdogan Castle of Pranks. Okay. And every time I say the word Edon, it's really pronounced, like it's spelled Hesden. So if you go to look this up later. So this is in France where half the letters aren't said out loud. Um, Thank God. As they should be. Yeah. <laughs> so my sources, uh, this started with a JSTOR Daily article called, the, label, or titled, The Medieval Castle That Pranked Its Visitors by Amelia Sloth. Ooh, Okay. And then Aristocratic Power and Natural, in quotation marks, Landscape the castle garden or the garden park at Erdogan circa 1291 to 1302 by Sharon Farmer. Oh my goodness. <laughs> yeah. So we're going back. Okay. I'm so excited. So again, I'm going to keep trying to say Edon. I'm going to mispronounce it at least a dozen times. So. Hey, at least you got the right place. I said Panama for panorama. <laughs> <laughs> They could have had a couple segments filmed there. We don't know. I mean, yeah, I'm sure there actually probably was if you think about it. But again, my bad, because I was actually thinking about the movie Sahara and we thought we were in Panama. That was, so mm. that's not why I was thinking about that. <laughs> okay, so um, the elite of medieval Europe were no strangers to elaborate entertainment. I mean, we've all seen the period pieces. So you're imagining banquets of feast-laden tables that floated from ceilings, wine that poured from fountains, 
rose water and sugared almonds that pelted guests' head like hail. That part doesn't sound especially exciting. Like, that sounds painful. I think I would be more ticked off that y'all got got up in my hair like that. I mean, just it's just treats for later when you fish them out. Hmm. No. All right. Well, I'm not uh, like you could find that treat in my pocket later. That'd be fine. But in my hair, I'm probably going to go cry about it. Oh, I'm going to write that down. Yeah, I got a soft spot for my hair. Okay. Yeah. So when nobility took the the time to delight and astound their guests with these magical feasts, it really did nothing but demonstrate their wealth and power. And Edom in France, this was an idyllic beauty of grounds that was counterpointed by, quote, sadistic slapstick of the castle's engines of amusement. Prank machines (laughs) that soaked guests with jets of water, spattered them with flour, flung them into piles of feathers. Edom thus carried the performance of wealth and power to unprecedented extreme. Yeah. And I'm like, okay, I am here for this. (laughs) <laughs> Let us learn more because holy crap. This, you go on. <laughs> yes. This project begun under Count Robert II, uh, who lived from 1250 to 1302. Perhaps they think that they they these were expire, inspired by his travels in the Mediterranean. It was continued and elaborated by his daughter, Maha of Atois. I butchered that name. I don't think that's how it said and later by Philip the Good. And over the centuries, its amusements developed and its fame spread. So this just <laughs> kept going. Okay. But first, we're going to zoom out. We're going to talk more about who Count Robert was. He's the nephew of King Louis the Ninth, or King Louis the Ninth, who later was canonized as St. Louis or St. Louis. Mm-hmm. Um, Louis. Okay. Robert's father died in the Crusades, and it was St. Louis' brother, you know, the, that's how nephews work. Um, <laughs> Thanks for that. Yeah, I mean, I'm here for you. His mom was Matilda of Brabant, and she was a single parent for the first four years of Robert's life. And it's then that she marries uh, someone named Count St. Paul. And from what I understand about medieval law, which isn't a ton, it <laughs> Like you would, you would assume, okay. So as soon as his dad dies, he's technically an orphan and he inherits all of his dad's stuff. Right. Even though mom is still alive, which, and that, that took me a second to wrap my brain. I was like, but mom is still there. I was like, oh yeah, she's, she's a woman. She, she has nothing. Um, In fact. And so it's just like, oh yeah. Okay. So it could be a, it's easy to assume that he had this rather indulgent childhood, you know, because now he is the count and he inherits all the lands and titles. However, it's Robert's uh, relation to King King Louis that prevents this. The sons and daughters of the king were, were told repeatedly to lead virtuous, sober, exemplary lives, just as their holy relative King Louis did. And King Louis, he he avoids all of the aristocratic trimmings towards the end of his life. He writes down his own accord that is now called the teachings and instructions of St. Louis. And so I'm reading this and I'm like, okay, but if he wrote them all down, of course, he's going to play up his own virtues. He's going to read more into what he's doing because we, you know, those are the machinations of his own mind. You know, I don't want to brag, but I'm, I'm pretty humble <laughs> kind of deal. 
I love it. I don't want to brag, but I'm a really humble guy. Like, right. Yeah. Um, we do know the king was said to never hunt, gamble. He watered down his wine. He rejected elaborate meals, loathed tournaments, and only tolerated minstrelry within the limits of rigorous decency. So, like, when why when... are you even the king then? I mean, like, did I mention that this was French? Because it he he seemed to be the antithesis of what I understand as French culture. Yeah, you're absolutely right. <laughs> but like, one of the things that cracked me up so much is that he dressed in such a plain style that it antagonized his wife. <laughs> okay, so is this is it like you're meaning like so? Ian went through a phase where for the first like 10 years we were together all he wore were khakis and white t-shirts and that's fine like it was actually quite partial to that but then he started buying like printed t-shirts and like retro t-shirts and I was super cool with that but then one day I bought him a neon orange t-shirt and I insisted that he love it or it's hoodie and he still doesn't wear it and it antagonizes me because he never wears it um I think this would be the equivalent of Ian coming out and just a tore up sweatsuit that you're like, babe, we're going on a date. I'm going to need you to look like you have a home. That never happens. Okay. But I mean, I think it was like so below his station that his wife was like, we are entertaining the diplomats and heads of state of 14 different castles and you are dressed like In you. In a burlap sack. Yeah. Yeah, no. Thankfully, Ian loves to get dressed at this. So. Mm -hmm. Got it. <laughs> so Robert grows up relishing these visits with his uncle, and he recounts the saintly man as an adult very often at parties and stuff. And it's despite all of this, you know, very, you know, kind of barren childhood that he grows up and kind of returns to this childlike fascination with games and pleasure. Even though he does retain some of his uncle's piety and like on Monday, Thursday, he makes a practice of washing the feet of a number of poor people. Oh, that's cool. So it's like, he does retain some of that. Okay. But he's, he seemingly, so he, he grows up in King Louis court. Is that what my yeah. understanding is? Okay. Yeah. Okay. okay. Um, but then as an adult, I mean, so he does still maintain some of that piety he does, you know, as soon as he be grows into his own, he becomes more eccentric. Um, he does things like adopt a wolf as a pet and then let it roam freely. With, and it often goes and kills the animals of the surrounding peasants. So as they do, like when I learned that, I was like, OK, go on. Tell me more <laughs> about this wolf, because uh, I grew up with a wolf. Right. So I'm like, how mm, go on like I need chickens. <laughs> uh hold that thought there's no chickens in in this thing's count but you know uh the wolf according to an article said that it was kind of a status symbol for robert it wasn't used in hunting but was more just to oppress impress others that he could be associated with the mighty beast it also had this hidden message because this was also in like the werewolf lore and the height of you know scares and stuff like that that the wolf displayed this hidden message of being able to break with standard social conventions and Christian mercy. Hmm. And so that okay. seemed like a very interesting message to have. Um, in the spring of 1302, the wolf had 
quite a killing spree that it went on with the, the surrounding peasants' animals. In the spring, it killed 18 sheep, two lambs, two calves, and three geese. Wow. And so every time something like this The happened, geese had it coming. They, they, they're instruments of Satan. Um, <laughs> but every time this would happen, the, the peasants would come to Council Robert and they'd be like, yo, like, we got to do something about this. And so, you know, he would compensate them for their loss and things like that. And it's about this time that Robert's, um, or that, that Robert uh, outfits the wolf with bells as a result. And it didn't make the peasants happy. And accounts say that Robert fell into a fit of laughter as he was reminded of the Aesop's fable where they belled the cat. I don't remember that one. But the belling of the wolf didn't stop the carnage. It merely heralded savagery. Oh, that's rough. Yeah. So you'd be like, I hear the bells. Great. You know, what else did it kill? To get the sheep inside. Too late. <laughs> the bells mean it's already it's already gone it's already come and gone yeah that's unfortunate (laughs) so i mean to know that he just laughed at this like okay hold that thought because imagining you're visiting count robert's chateau you try to open a window and it splashes you with water and then slams back shut you open a book of ballads it flings soot in your face you run to the mirror to see how all this dousing affected your looks and poof you're covered in flour (laughs) <laughs> like I, I love it i was so excited by all of this and then the nastiest of all was was this trick a statue cries out ordering you to run to the next chamber in the name of the count if you obey this huge automata in the next room beat you with sticks what is an automata like a, a machine a robot like an old timey like a like a sparring bot no no um Okay, so I okay, this is this is one of the rabbit holes I went down. I started watching a ton of documentaries like Automata that speaks. I need to know more. I need to figure this out. And I started watching like documentaries on um it started off as like old autonoma. And there is an autonoma museum in England that has little machines, not I not all of them are little, um, but like imagine wooden robots that are able to do rudimentary movements okay okay like Um, through through gears and and things of that nature yeah okay like through just kind of clockwork mechanisms they're able to do some interesting things okay okay i'm here for it i mean just to know that like first off it's not often you get to read the word automata and so i was like oh Oh, yes word and then (laughs) to hear that there was an automata that like cried out with words and then another one beat someone with sticks and i was like no no and i was like hubs i need to figure this out like i was looking up like ancient roman and greek automata and like trying to figure out you know how they got a voice box and a recording and it to play and speakers i was like we didn't have that technology like i need and my husband's like they probably had a pipe and they probably had a human at the other end of the pipe and even though that pipe curves it still carries sound. So you have a human delivering in the name of the count. I need you to run to this next room. And then this machine beat you with a stick. <laughs> Could you imagine being that servant? All right. Well, it's time to go do the callings. It's Tuesday <laughs> at 6.50. I've got to <laughs> head to this this little pipe in the wall. And then 
The next one cracks me up because it said there was an assortment of pipes used to, quote, wet ladies from below, unquote. So sprinkler system that sprayed water up the skirts like a bidet, but a surprise bidet. (laughs) Surprise. Mm -hmm. You're clean. Ta-da! And so the visitors would emerge plastered from head to toe in flour and soot, soaked with clothes, makeup, and hairdos ruined. Oh. Why did why did they come? Were they, they knew. Sim- maybe not at first, but you would after a while. This you know this word spreads. Were they simply powerless to inf- refuse the count's invitation, or did they at some level delight in the shock and confusion, just like we delight in roller coasters or haunted houses? I think it's so. like, I mean, yeah. there's going to be some of that. Like they didn't have TV. There was no Netflix. Yeah. You know, Candy Crush hadn't come around yet. I mean, I would be delighted to walk through a house like that and see how much like big kid got in the face because he's the one that opens all the doors first. Right. <laughs> yeah. So I, imagine I there's a bridge that is watched over by a cadre of mechanical monkeys clad in badgered skin to give them the appearance of life. And that Mm. frightened me. I don't know why just knowing that they're like, okay, wooden monkeys, I'm okay with. You put badger skin on them. No, I'm done. Tap out. That's too much. Yeah, that is terrifying. And then we don't have a lot of information about like what it looked like or pictures or images because... Erdogan was destroyed by war in 1553 and mm. all of the engines of amusement went with it. So we'll never know precisely how they worked, nor will we know what motivated Count Robert to begin the project of their construction in the first place. I mean, uh, he, the idle rich. <laughs> I mean, that could, you know, and he kind of rebelled against, you know, his uncle's lifestyle towards the end. But it's, we do have kind of a, a little bit of information. We've got bills for the construction of his machines, maps of the complex, and then there's several, not several, but you know, it's a couple accounts that make sense of all of the the oddity that we we see. And so when we zoom out and we look at the the widening the, the castle's wider surroundings, it can kind of shed a little bit of light. Um, Erdogan's park fanned out around the castle and it was thick with uh, meadows and woodlands and marshes. They had deer and hart, which are red-tailed deer, you know, H-A-R-T, that grazed the grassy slopes, streams that ran with carp and bream, and meadows that were dotted in strawberries. It was described as an aristocratic cornucopia, a land of plenty. Yeah. All of this, though, was completely fabricated. Like, that appearance of natural wealth was far from natural. Like, the hands, human hands, like, sculpted out the landscape, they dug out the ponds, and they erected huge walls that depend in the wildlife and so like all of the deer that were there they were not able to kind of come and go as they pleased and count robert there was one report that said that count robert was kind of the reason well a contributing factor to rabbits ending up in europe because he imported rabbits for this garden and (laughs) they lived in the walled fence and then eventually you know they kind of didn't yeah (laughs) They kind of escaped. And so it was it was very interesting to know that like rabbits didn't 
originally live in Europe. Like I just assumed they, they did that they originated in Africa. And I was like, Qua? yeah, like I just assumed it's the rabbit. It's all, no, no, it's rabbit the stew. That's a very European thing. Weird. It, it was the idle rich that, you know, gave them them rabbits. Thanks guys. And so we have these, the whimsical automata that were scattered through the woodland paths. And, you know, so I'm kind of like, wow. Okay. They had a pavilion house that had gilded mechanical birds and that these creatures spun an aura of enchantment over the park, turning it into kind of a fairyland. So this was, you know, like a Disneyland 1.0. Yeah. 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 And Don was, was a reflection of these, these tales of knighthood and chivalry that Count Robert was just thrilled with. And his preoccupation with these narrative structures were mirrored in the layout of the park. One of the things that writers have said is that the castle's devices were meant to strip away the strict exoskeleton of court propriety. Like it was designed to remove all, like you strip away the makeup, you strip away the wigs, you strip away the clothes. And these people who come just dressed to the nines are reduced to the base human that everybody else around them is. That's awesome. I mean, it is kind of neat when you think of it like that. And he had something called the chamber of the golden fleece, which was pretty interesting. So you walk into this room and it said that there were brilliant frescoes that covered the walls, illuminating every moment of the tale of like, you know, Jason and the fleece. Mm -hmm. And in the middle was a wooden statue of a hermit that would recount to visitors how the Greek hero Jason traveled through strange and treacherous lands and, you know, to find the golden fleece. And then this is inside, or I presume inside, there was a flash and a crash of thunder and rain and snow poured from the ceiling. And it was as if visitors were caught in furious tempest that rocked Jason's ship. Oh my gosh. So this guy was like the set designer of the universe. Like I am out to have a good time inside. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I love it. I mean, it was so fascinating because I was like, how would you do like, and that's when I was like, but he had a robot that said the words. And it's like, we don't really know. It could have been a robot that had a series of flashcards that kind of, I mean, I assume it had words because I've been to the haunted castle or the haunted house at Disneyland. Like I, I'm familiar, <laughs> like, so I was imagining a lot of that and it could have been a lot of my own projections on this, but it was still just incredible absolutely and it was so when you think about like you know just all of the the things that went into that part of the castle that had the golden fleece story like there were delights in this garden and it was designed to humiliate them and it really tried to take them out of their current world and when you look at like the story of of jason one author says to take on that heroism you must get soaked that transformation demands torment or at least discomfort like a blitz of flower (laughs) to the face and it was just incredible of like you know those really immersive tales that pull you out of your current life and just like spat this craziness at you that you can't look away i love it and so then when i was reading about all this i was like okay, this is an incredible tale. Like how, how does it end? 
Yeah. His end wasn't as magical. So mm. you remember how I said it in the spring of 18 or of 1302, his wolf went on a killing spree? Mm-hmm. Well, just after that in June, Count Robert dies in battle. He's fighting against the Flemish and in a bloodlust. I mean, apparently it was a thing. It was just, <laughs> you know, big rivalries. Robert, he calls for his men, his infantry to pull back because he he wants the infantry to come back. He wants to be just charge forward with the cavalry and really, really take over and, and you know, kind of be heroic. And he didn't necessarily pay too much attention to the battlefield or there was something that he didn't quite see. And so the horses had a hard time with the water and the terrain and all of that. By the time the cavalry realized this, it was too late and thousands of French soldiers were dead or dying. And the battle is referred to as the battle of the golden spurs due to the the golden spurs that the aristocrats from the cavalry were wearing and riding into battle. The spurs were taken from their bodies and hung on the church of Our Lady Contrai. And one of the spurs were undoubtedly Count Robert's. Mm. But I mean, we do know just from the accounts that even though he ended on a low note, his daughter carried on with the whimsy of the garden for, you know, a chunk of time. And that the garden maintained until the 1500s. Really, 200 years. Well, yeah, I mean, like when your granddad sets up a thing like this and he's been pranking the locals for his whole life, you kind of got to carry that off yeah i mean the machine's already built i mean those monkeys they don't need anything and to boot that how do you even like i i feel like if it were me i would be i would be perpetually like always perplexed by these things like oh i found another one (laughs) (laughs) i cleaned back those briars and i had an automata beat me with a stick (laughs) exactly like I really see that there's some like absolute great humor, but also like to be like, I don't know why, but when you were describing some of the things that happened inside, I was imagining like the Duke getting up to go or the Count getting up to go to the bathroom in the middle of the night and like being taken out by his own machinations. (laughs) (laughs) Wanders into the wrong room and all of a sudden, (laughs) yeah, badger skin clad monkeys attack him. Yeah, that was exactly what I was thinking. So, like, how do you not keep that going on, you know? I'd be slightly inconvenienced by my own doing. <laughs> or his daughter who just moves him into different spots in the middle of the night just to mess with her dad. Absolutely. Absolutely. I would do it. I mean, I would be excited and concerned every time I got a gift from that man. Yeah. Do I want to open this? Hmm. Why don't you open this, dear? Yeah. <laughs> I'm so excited. I'll keep what's ever in the box, but I'm not pulling that ribbon. Yep, that's all you, babe. Yep. Yeah, I don't, mm-hmm. I don't mm, nope. <laughs> oh my gosh. My my imagination is just like over the over the moon with what could could, could you imagine look like being like the servants at his castle because it's like it snowed four times in that room today and i've got to go clean it out 
again, because that is a huge slip hazard. And the last time. I'm imagining like, you know, the disgruntled employee that like absolutely hates his job, but goes and does it well every day. Like, that's what I'm imagining. (laughs) The entire staff full of them. Yep. Like, I hate this job. (laughs) That surprise bidet gets me every time. Every time. (laughs) Yeah, that's. Oh, poor employees. I would like to hear their journal entries. So I was back at the castle. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it was her ancestor. <laughs> <laughs> and Does the damn wolf stole the ham out of the back room. <laughs> We're going to call her uh, Cindy from now on, I think. What do you think? The Cindy, Cindy work? I mean, it beats Karen. (laughs) I would like her to make an appearance in at least one story every episode. I'll do what I can. Sincerely and benevolently yours. (laughs) (laughs) You know, the antithesis of that is always great. You know, (laughs) malignantly and malevolently (laughs) yours. (laughs) i absolutely love that i cannot wait to tell ethan that i found his next escape room yeah you know but from 1290 or 1302 time machine and to speak french we'll work it out okay i mean that's all you gotta do just tell him to look up the, the hesden castle yeah, I feel like I feel like French in 1290 versus French today is probably very different. Much yeah. the same that English in 1290 versus English today. What I learned is that England in 1957 is very different than England today. <laughs> Just put a sprig of spaghetti in the tomato sauce and hope for the best. Hope for the best. We told these idiots that they just had to hope. <laughs> Twice. Once in 1290 and once in 1957. It was perfect. <laughs> Loved it. Well, if you have enjoyed our April Fool's Day episode, even though it's not April Fool's Day yet, it's done just in time because this April Fool's Day didn't land on a Friday. Um and you want to give me a birthday present because my birthday is April Fool's Day, you can share this podcast with a friend, make them listen to it against their will. Or like for their will, whatever. Yeah, I mean, you choose for them. Uh, leave a <laughs> review, rate, subscribe, and uh, make everybody you know compulsively listen. Or not. We're going to keep telling stories anyway. If you'd like to give us an email and uh, tell us how much you you liked, is it Cindy or Linda? Who's Ooh, who's... Linda's good too. Linda, okay. You if know what? You... Could you just name her? That'd be great. <laughs> yeah, if you have a name for my compulsive chain smoking uh, East operator. Coast, yeah, operator, <laughs> uh, give us an email at unhinged.historypod at gmail.com. And on that note, we'll see you next week. Bye. Bye.